Hey guys, Tim here, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. On today's episode, we have something a little different for you guys that we call Case Storytime with Leah. Without further ado, here's Leah with a story for you guys. During the month of July, our entire Workman Forensics team has been participating twice a week in case studies here at the office as part of our training. And today I thought it would be cool if we invited our listeners to participate in a case story about a divorce case. Now, because of the public nature of this case, I do want to reassure anyone listening that this is not one particular case, but rather a combination of um, the most common types of cases. So let's get started. Sharon was a stay-at-home mom of four for 17 years. She and Bob had been married for 25 years. He was in the construction industry and running his own business and then also some rental properties for the majority of that time. Their marriage had really been held together by a thread of staying together for the kids for a long time. Sharon began selling a popular line of multi-level marketing products as a way to immerse herself in social activities, and Bob poured himself into his work, growing the company larger than he'd ever imagined while managing his taxable income through rental properties. After living their separate lives under the same roof for five years, Bob had enough and a girlfriend. He began planning for divorce. Sharon was unhappy, but after so many years of marriage, she thought they would just keep doing their own things until death parted them. One day when Bob came home with the divorce papers, Sharon was stunned. A few months later, Bob let her know that he would give her the house and $10,000. When she asked about the business and dividing that, he said, oh, well, my dad owns half, you know, and then that other portion was gifted to me by my dad 10 years ago. Like it's, all, it's just all separate. Sharon's gut told her this was not true. It couldn't be true. How would she even survive? She hadn't worked a real job in 23 years. Amidst spiraling out of control, she called her attorney who suggested she call us. Sharon came into my office in a panic, dragging a cart full of banker's boxes behind her. I've been told you can figure this out, she said. There's no way we've been living the way we have for him to get everything. After talking through the history of their marriage, business, and life in general, I asked her to fill out a timeline. When did she get married? When did she think the business began? Had they had any valuations for loans in the past? When did they purchase their home? A vacation home? So forth. I then looked at the stacks of bankers' boxes on her cart and asked, Sharon, does that pile of boxes have a copy of personal and business bank accounts by chance? Well, gracious, I don't know. I haven't looked at anything financial in 25 years, she replied. All right, I said, we'll just start there. Our first step in any divorce case is to look at bank and credit card statements. But before we dig in, we want to get organized by creating a list of all the documents we have possession of and a list of all bank and credit card and any other financial accounts. This allowed us to see what we have and what we're lacking. Step two, looking at a bunch of paper or PDFs never helped anyone. So as part of our process, we import or we hand enter each line of information from either bank statements or credit cards into an Excel spreadsheet. With this digitized information, the next step is to clean the data so we can summarize by payee. It's so much simpler to summarize how the money was spent and where it came from if you subtotal or summarize by payee. From there, a few key things we want to look for are, one, other bank accounts. Did they transfer money to another bank account, send a wire to another bank account that maybe we don't know about, write checks to another bank account? We're going to look for credit card payments, ones that we know about, ones that we don't. We're going to look for mortgage payments. We're going to look for trips, girlfriend expenditures, payments to individuals, payments to LLCs and corporations. 
After identifying these types of items from the bank and credit card statements, then we started researching. For Sharon, we ran an investigative database research on Bob. This search listed several addresses. Sharon identified their personal home and all of the rental properties she knew about. We then compared the different types of mortgage payments to the personal home and rental properties identified, and we found three more mortgage payments than houses Sharon knew about or that we'd identified in the database. We provided the mortgage holder's names to Sharon's attorney to subpoena. After 30 days, and yeah, these things move pretty slowly, information was returned for two of the properties, but not the third. The response from the third mortgage holder advised that these records did not belong to Sharon or Bob, and they wouldn't provide them. Knowing what a good money trail to find money looks like, at Sharon's request, we connected with a private investigator to do a little recon and surveillance on Bob. After following Bob for a few days, the PI identified Bob's girlfriend, Kate. With this information in hand, we researched Kate. Turns out, Kate had recently purchased a home. Since we had digitized all of the personal and business bank statements, we went back to the summarized payees to search for any indication of earnest money, down payments, or anything of the like. And what do you think we found? From the business bank account, we found an earnest money check and a down payment on the loan. After finding this golden nugget of information, Sharon was all in, and she was hooked on finding more. And let's be honest, so were we. We continued this process, identifying all sorts of trips and not to mention an extra business bank account or two. But let's get back to the other issue. Besides hiding assets, the 50-50 ownership with his dad and inheritance issue. When someone has inherited money, and especially if the funds are kept separate, they can often have a claim to keep those funds separate and outside of the marital estate. But Bob was saying his dad had owned the business originally and then gifted 50% to him as his son. While we normally let the legal experts and attorneys argue about the details of assets being included or not included in the marital estate, using financial information and research, we can often identify facts to help the client and counsel in these situations. The simplest place to look first are tax returns. When we looked at the tax returns for the business, Bob had been getting a K-1 as far back as we had <coughs> returns. And after finding the hidden asset, Sharon was like a dog with a bone she began secretly digging through boxes at her house. She was so excited when she discovered a tax return and corresponding K-1 that was 15 years old. What made this even better is that the K-1 listed her husband as 100% owner, not 50%. So then we searched the Secretary of State website for the business articles of incorporation. We, of course, discovered that Bob had started the business two years after Sharon and Bob were married. There was no mention of his dad at all. Since Sharon was now entitled to half of the business value, another process began in valuing the company. Bob hired someone, of course, an expert who lowballed the value, and through our process of removing personal expenses from the business and finding all sorts of personal assets being run through the business, the valuation expert working with us was able to provide an opinion as to value as well. Bob's valuation expert said the construction business was worth $250,000. Sharon's valuation expert said it was worth $2 million. While we still had a few other details to look through, both of these were huge wins for Sharon, not to mention all the other goodies we found along the way. Remember the, I'll give you the house and $10,000? Well, after three attempts at mediation, the couple settled. After dividing the rental properties, business, and personal assets, 
Sharon received a settlement of $2 million. Do you suspect your spouse is hiding assets or lying about his or her income? We've spent the last eight years working to perfect a system that finds hidden assets and verifies income specifically for divorce cases. And for the first time, we're making this available to the public. Join us for our Find Money in Divorce workshops beginning in August. For more information, visit findmoneyindivorce.com. Yeah, so the question is, researching on the Secretary of State website, what type of information are we looking for there? Primarily, if you just do a cursory free search, it's going to identify when the company began or when they were registered with the state and then who the registered agent is. A lot of times the registered agent is the owner, but for a lot of companies, they'll either hire a third party. There's actually companies that will set up your company and then they will list themselves as the registered agent. A lot of times you'll see this, especially the company will register your business in like Delaware where there's different rules and stuff. Like you get into a lot of that with shell companies. Also an attorney or an accountant will often set up the corporation or LLC. So then the attorney or the accountant will be listed as the registered agent. Whenever that happens and we see that as a registered agent, you can pay a little extra. I think it's like $5 or something. And you can actually go pull the records that show who was listed as the owner. Then also, once you know the name of that LLC, like if it's an LLC you didn't know about and it doesn't show up on our database research, you can then go find this LLC on the Secretary of State. You know it's connected. Then go run it through TLO. And then TLO will actually pull who is listed as like the president, vice president, managing member. It'll give you a little more information. So by using all of those resources, that helps us just provide more information to the client. Great question. So the question is, how did Sharon have access to the business bank accounts? Well, since this is a combination of several stories, <laughs> no, it's fine. But since it's a combination of several stories, one, sometimes there's just bank statements at the house. So we'll just gather those and that'll get us started. But then once you get an attorney involved and the divorce has been filed, you can request that information through discovery. And so Sharon's attorney would have sent a list of documents that they wanted from Bob's attorney, and then Bob would be required to provide it. What we've run into a lot of times, though, is that Bob will say, well, that's separate property, and so that would just be too voluminous or like that's just too much work to gather all that information for five years or whatever we ask for. In that case, if they're really pushing back, then the attorney can issue, Sharon's attorney could have issued a subpoena to then get those bank documents. But a lot of times it's just, you know, they're at the house or, you know, of course, even the personal bank accounts, or maybe she, you know, if, if all of the accounts were at one financial institution, sometimes all of those show up online. And so she could have just been used to getting on and looking at her personal account and not caring about the rest. But since she has that log on, she can just download all of that. Okay, so if there is a bank account that only one spouse is listed, does the other spouse have permission or how do they access the account that their name's not on? Well, once again, you know, in divorce, the big question is what funded something? And so I've never run into where my client didn't have access to his or her spouse's bank account because 
a lot of times they knew what funded that individual's account. I'm thinking of one in particular, and we can say that it was Sharon. Sharon's individual account was funded by Bob's payroll. Like he would give her $1,500 a paycheck or $3,000 a month or something like that just for her to spend. So the source of that individual bank account was the marital estate. It was what they were living off of. And so if the source for, let's say that the spouse, so let's say Bob had an individual bank account and it was funded by the, you know, just his paycheck or whatever. And it wasn't funded by something that was specifically separate, like an inheritance, like I mentioned in the story, then she would have access to it because it was funded with marital funds. Does that make sense? Yes. So the question is, was the business considered marital because they started it after they got married? And the answer is yes. In this case, that did happen since he started it after they were married and there were no other owners. And, you know, I didn't really get into the details of it. But another thing we would check for is to make sure that the capital that started the business didn't come from the dad as an inheritance or as a gift or something of that nature. But in this particular case, it was just started from scratch. They had no money. They start this business and then it just grew. Yeah, great question. So the question is, how many years of statements do we look at? A lot of times we ask for five. The last five years, that is what is commonly used for valuation purposes. So whatever we're doing, we just want to be efficient in making sure that, especially if they're going to go to a valuation expert after us, or if we're working with a valuation expert, that we've already looked at all the years. We don't have to start the process over. So we like to ask for five. I would say no fewer than three years. But then if there are little details like how are we going to determine the source of certain assets in dispute, we might need to ask for more. But a bank, and of course you're my banking person, so you can correct me, but a bank only keeps the records for seven years? Okay. Okay. So our resident banking expert says mm -hmm. bank statements are kept five years in-house and then 10 years electronically, right? Okay. Uh, that's going to limit, you know, unless like Sharon, they can go and dig in their files at home and find some older bank statements. Okay. So my summarized version of this question is how do we find the super secret bank accounts that cannot be traced electronically or through checks or any of those means and just funded with cash? So there's several different ways, and I feel like we should do a whole case story just about that. But a lot of times we can use what we call a lifestyle analysis. We could do that on the business to see does revenue, like is there a reason for revenue changing if it's significant? We can also look at, well, and that's not really lifestyle analysis, but the same concept. What are, you know, what are their sources of income and are they consistent? Is there a reason they've gone down? Things like that. So one way that you could have completely untraceable cash, not that I want to like put this out in the world, but untraceable cash would be, or think that you do, is by essentially skimming from your own business. So as payments are coming in, you take those cash payments and never record them. But the thing is that if we are looking at five years, we might be able to tell, especially if it coincides with when we think someone like Bob started planning for divorce did it drop off then? Um, and even looking at it, not even just a year over year, but a month over month, and then comparing that between years. So there's things we can do to say, hey, this seems weird. And especially in, like, let's say that he's in the construction business is what the story showed. But, you know, if he was doing commercial, 
then we could look at what types of projects he had been working on and did it seem reasonable that a project stopped early or maybe something just looks weird, then we contact the customer and get information from the customer. So there's ways, there's always ways to find things like that. Not to mention that he's still got an invoice from somewhere. On one of the cases I combined into this, we looked at the audit trail in QuickBooks because he ran his company in QuickBooks. So we looked at the audit trail for all deleted invoices and then considered, you know, then talked to the client about do we need to contact these people to see if he was deleting the invoices so that he could just take the cash or siphon off, you know, even checks. It would work for checks too, that they could just take checks from their clients and put it in a separate bank account. So like I've said in multiple podcasts at this point, if somebody thinks that they can have a scenario where I couldn't trace their money, I will take that challenge. But they just need to email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com. And I will gladly take that challenge and figure out how I would trace it. But don't make one up tray and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so earnest money happens whenever you go, you want to place an offer on a house and you usually give them a few thousand dollars to say that you're interested in this. And there's a couple different ways you can get that earnest money back. But it, it's essentially saying if I back out for some random reason after a certain period of time, then the seller gets to keep that money. So it's kind of a deposit, making sure that you're not just making offers on houses and then they take it, you know, market sale pending and then you back out and then, you know, so just some skin in the game before you start negotiating with an owner. Actually, I don't know that it happens before the owner, but anyway, it's part of that beginning negotiation <laughs> process. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode. To get updates on future podcasts, events, and resources, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 